This episode contains frequent book recommendations. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 16 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is David Keenan. David is a prize-winning author. His brilliant fourth novel, Monument Maker, is out now through White Rabbit Press. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much, Ben. How is life in Glasgow? Um, It's good. I love Glasgow. I mean, I've lived here most of my life. I feel myself definitely a Glaswegian. Um, I enjoy the enjoy the sort of mad stimulation of the streets and the amazing patter and language and sort of joy in language that Scottish and Irish uh, people have. So I think it's a really great place to live in terms of uh, inspiration and creativity. And also I like being a little bit off the map. You know, I'm not, I, I like not living in London and not really being part of any sort of literary scene or any any writing scene at all, really. I, I kind of work on my own. Um, I live a fairly solitary life and I'm mostly just write all day. So in a way, weirdly enough, the pandemic hasn't done much to change my life really because this is kind of, I I, loved, I live a lockdown life <laughs> on the whole. Although I do miss my friends. I mean, it ha- that's been the hardest thing. I th- you kind of convince yourself that you have the resilience of a writer because you spend so much of your time on your own that actually you don't know really need anyone. But um, when I did finally travel down to London for the launch of Monument Maker, I realised how much, how how bereft how, how my life was without my friends, you know. So I do miss them. But on the whole, um, yeah, I live a fairly solitary life just working away, writing much through every day. Okay. I was really lucky to read Monument Maker. I don't know how I came across it, but it is brilliant. And it's, it came out a couple of months ago. It's 800 pages. It's a masterpiece. It took 10 years for you to write. Is that right? Yes, it did. Uh-huh. Could you tell us a bit more about the plot and how you came to write it? Yeah, I can tell you about how the process came about. I mean, uh, uh, about um, it was written from between 2008 and 2018, and it started off... It was, it was written backwards. So apart from the final appendix, which I couldn't do until the whole book was written, but apart from that, the book was written in the opposite order that it appears. So I, I wrote the last section first, and then I began to figure out, uh, sort of unlock that section and see how that we, we could ravel backwards to a potential beginning. So I challenged myself to write a book from the end to the beginning rather than the beginning to the end. It seems like quite an exciting thing to do. But... Um, uh, it was originally called The Tomb of the Song, which was the title of the, of the end section previously, and that appears during the book as well. Um, but I found it quite mentally taxing to, to write. And after about the first year of working on it, I, I began to have a... I wouldn't quite say it was a mental breakdown, but I began to feel quite mentally distraught working on it, and my wife noticed my behaviour changing, and I found that... Um, it was only later that I realised what seemed to be happening as I was I was dealing with a book that was communing with the dead in a very particular way because Monument Maker it's a, it's a monument for the dead. One of the big stories is in it is the story of Frater Jim who says I have come to uh, unite all true loves to rescue the disappeared to turn history to dust. And I realised that was my task in the book, nonetheless, to rescue all the nameless disappeared of the Second World War or of history. Even it became that bold, a sort of ambitious task and I didn't know if I was up to it and quite often it was hard for me to switch off because I felt literally possessed by the voices of the dead who seemed to be using me to write the book so it was quite a disturbing um, experience and also it's it's amazed me more that I don't hear more writers 
talk about the mental toll the books can take, the how close to madness they can be, how it can feel like communing with the dead. I don't often hear writers talking about this, so I don't know if it's just me, because I taught myself to write. I didn't go to a creative writing workshop. I didn't know any other writers, so I just began writing. And this is what it seemed to me. It seems to me becoming a writer has been much more akin to becoming some kind of conduit for voices from the underworld, the other side, the dead. I, I'm not sure, but a conduit for voices, it, it felt like for me. That's so interesting you say that because I know I was reading uh, that you uh, you like your science fiction. Philip K. Dick in his last years, I think, was, was felt very much the same thing. And he felt that, you know, voices were coming to him. And uh, I think there's people who think that his writing was about, you know, other people communing with him. Yep. I mean, I'm very interested in that. I'm very interested in the whole tradition of sort of visionary transmitted texts, whether we're going back to Yeats's A Vision or um, Alistair Crowley's The Book of the Law or um, a lot of the sort of West Coast poets, like perhaps Jack Spicer, who's another one whose poetry seems to me is sort of communicated, and Charles Olson as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I became very interested in that. Philip K. Dick, that's a very good point. I mean, I love Philip K. Dick. I, I'll say I haven't read him for a while. I went through a period when I was younger where I read basically everything, including his, um, um, what name does he give to it? To his big journal of vision. He gives it a name. I can't remember what it's called. But it's absolutely incredible. And, and books like Vallis and Ubik and things like that, they do feel as if they're coming from somewhere else. William Burroughs is another one. It feels like somehow when you enter a Burroughs novel, like you enter a, a, a PKD novel, you're entering a sort of an, 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 an alternate world. A place where different rules apply, but in a place that's alive, that has an uncanny life. So it's also the idea of Monument Maker was the, the, the book as entity, and also the book as cathedral, as a place that mm. you could enter and explore on your own in a way, a space outside of normal space and time. I was trying to write it, and that's why I wanted that scale as well. I wanted a scale that ran into science fiction, that ran deep into history, that ran from the future to the past, but maintained it in an eternal present in the shape of a cathedral. As a monument, um, a literal monument, you know. At the beginning, I know that there's a there's a section where your narrator, who I assume is a standing for you, he throws off the call of his father into into the river, and I feel like that that motif goes through your book, and you have these the visions of heads like the whole way through, and the vision of like uh, like you've got a talking head, and uh, and I feel like that whole idea really carries through the whole novel of of things coming from outside so i see exactly what you're talking about and it's also an attempt that's an attempt to it sort of symbolizes the eternal resurrection and flesh that is the life of mankind the eternal resurrection at the end he says there's no end of flesh he touches his head and he says there's no end there's, there's no end of flesh in this world and the cube the cube that goes out on the sea that has the head in it you know mm. that that seems something mythological that i've tapped in because after Monument Maker, I now see references to this cube, this boat going out on the water, and I realise it's the same thing that D.H. Lawrence talks about when he talks about build your ship of death, building your Monument Maker was me building my ship of death. That's what happens exactly at the beginning or the ending of Monument Maker. But this box, this bark, this Egyptian bark is like a boat of the dead that floats through the entire book like a sarcophagus. You know, it washes up at one point in a stone sarcophagus, which is broken up, and inside there's a body, there's a headless body and a head. And again, at Khartoum, they urinate on the head and they bury it, as if they're putting a seed in the ground for something to grow from. 
So it's a simultaneously the the, the, the the eternal resurrection of the flesh, which seems to me a fact, which is Christ's promise, that the flesh is eternally resurrected. The head is always changed, but the eye remains. So in the book, the claim for immortality, and that's why I have the motif all the way through the book, and it never ends. It keeps setting out in this river again and again. The key to that is that the flesh is resurrected, but the eye is always experienced as I. Every eye experiences the eye. That's the resurrection. So in a way, you, there is no death because the eye never disappears. We just believe that we're different, we're different experiences of it. So I'm trying to thread these little messages through, but in a musical sense, that's why I had them coming in and out like a river as well. I wanted it to be like choral, like a song. And, and, and the delivery, the rhythm of the book was very important in terms of that. Have it sort of song-like, you know? The book, like, I love the, I love the front page with, you know, with all of the sections in it. And you divide the book up into different sections and they're named after parts of a cathedral and all the stories within the book interlock in different ways. Could you tell us about that, that structure of the narrative and why you chose that? Well, one of the things, again, it, it, it seems to me, I became very interested in, in uh, Gothic and Romanesque sculpture and architecture. I became obsessed. Um, and, um, I was lucky to travel to the Ile de France, where a lot of the great cathedrals are, um, on a Robert Louis Stevenson fellowship, where I finished Monument Maker. So I was actually spending the day writing Monument Maker and going to church. I would go to mass and any old, I would cycle to any local mass, I could do any local services, any church or vague monument that was around there. And I began to realise this is what I've been doing in all my books. My first book is called This Is Memorial Device. And I began to see that these, these the, 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 the cathedrals were memorial devices. And literally I was I was engaged in the same work that the stonemasons were. And I don't, I'm not writing for my own time in the way that they're not creating for their own time. I don't really have a lot of interest in the contemporary novel. I'm not, I'm not in dialogue with the contemporary novel. There's mm. something else that I've come here to do and it's to serve essentially. And it's to write in gratitude. All my books are written in gratitude for the gift of experience, but to pass that on and somehow say thank you. And I began to realise that this was my own working in stone, my own cathedral. So then I began to design the whole book as a cathedral you could move through. And also like a cathedral, you could enter via different ways. You can stay in certain sections. As you say, the books all interlink. You know, some I've seen some reviews that are like, wow, it's, it's, it's baffling how they, 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 the books link up. But to me, it's not. I mean, there, there, there's, a, there's a strong narrative yeah. through all that. I, I can explain it. would take a long time. And it might take three readings for a, a beginner reader. But mm. everything is tied together. Everything is tied together completely. Yeah. That is one story that unfolds. But I wanted to be very radical in my structure and break it up so completely that we were jumping back and forward without too much forewarning of who's speaking or where we're going next. Because again, like a cathedral or like a choral piece, I wanted a polyphony, a literal polyphony of voices in there, you know? It It's funny because it reads, it reads so beautifully as well. And I think that I understand how our reviewers wouldn't understand that it's interlinked because each part functions on its own really, really well. And yeah. if you published each part as a short story or a short novella or whatever it was, um, I think each part, each part functions independently. But when you do link them together, when you do put them together, the the whole is so much greater than the parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. You're right. I mean, they, they are intended to function as standalone reads. 
if you want to go there, definitely. And you can read on a lot of different levels. This, this is what I try to do with all my books. I mean, I don't think of myself as an experimental author. I just think that um, I'm I'm playing with the potential of the novel. I'm having fun with what novels can do. This is the novel. This is what the novel can do. To me, this is not experimental literature. This is literature. You yeah. know, this is so. This is what I'm trying to do myself. I'm playing. I'm sort of playing with the form in a way. You know, I'm pushing it as far as, as as far as I feel it can go. But I want my books to be explicable on loads of levels. You can get into the symbolism. You can get into the mythology. You can get into the recurring themes. This idea of salvation, things like this. You can enjoy it as a mad romp. You know, you can think it as funny. You know, you can read it on so many different levels. And I want, and I, none of them are invalid. Everyone is valid as well because my whole thing is once I finish the book, I let it go. And I'm never 100%, I never get 100% get to the bottom of my own books. So once it goes out there, everyone else's take on it is just as, as uh, valid and, and really fascinating. I mean, we did that. There was a Monument Maker reading group that was running for about for about past six weeks. It just finished. And it was amazing. I was having revelation after revelation, not just from other people's discussions of what, what was going on in the book, but just hearing how other people read passages. You know, I could hear it as, I was able to hear it as not me again. When I was writing it, it was not me because it was a voice. But you spend so much time editing it, you come and believe it's you. But when you hear it read back or you read it again, finished, you're like, there's no way I can in all honesty uh, take full responsibility for this book, you know? It's funny how many authors I've spoken to who've said that, that when their book is published and when other people interpret it, there are things in there that are seem to be obvious to readers that the authors didn't intend to put in or didn't deliberately put in and are there anyway. And I think that's some of the brilliant parts of, of writing because you can put stuff out there in, you know, and, and it's out to everybody's opinion. It's out to whatever people make of it. And often what they make of it is, you know, more than you put into it, which is really interesting. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I get out of it. Well, you, I don't, what I'm coming to more is I don't know what I put into it. I'm still mining it to find out. I mean, even the idea, which is central of the headlessness uh, and the body that passes through time, I didn't consciously sit down and think, there's an idea, I'll thread that all the way through the book. That body mm. literally kept washing up in the book, literally. And without me even knowing what it was there, but, but it, it, it washed up so emphatically that I was like, well, this, is, this, is, this book is speaking and this is supposed to be in this book. So I'll let it go, I'll keep writing without knowing. It's one of the things that you, you have to get, be able to get yourself to do. You have to write without knowing Abs and without lust of result, without lusting after, okay, we'll make this point or the book will go here. You have to throw your hands up and say, the book needs to go where it's going to go, mm. which is sometimes it results in really amazing moments like um there's a moment early on in monument maker where i really wept when it happened because i didn't know what was going to happen and it's the moment when a guy, a guy is in airdrie and he's going to visit a young woman who he's in love with who's a sculptor a secret mm. sculptor well you haven't read my earlier books but in my first book there's a character called mary hannah who's a sculptor and i love her she's one of the secret heroes in my first book I, I'm, I'm probably in love with her and i've always wanted to write another book where, about her because I like spending time with her but you can't force these characters in you just got to see what happens well when he goes to visit this sculptor he opens the garage where our sculptures are in and she's there and I'm not kidding as I was writing it I looked through the garage doors and I was like oh my god it's Mary Hannah <laughs> I didn't know she was going to show up here and I was so moved I was so moved to see Mary again and I was like oh wow I'm going to get to spend time with her she's my favorite I can't believe she showed up but she's so enigmatic. She fucked off after 5,000 words and doesn't appear in the book again. And I was like, that is so Mary Hannah. That is so mm -hmm. her. And so for me, these characters have an absolute life of their own. And it's just a joy for me to watch them. But I never 
I never manipulate them. I never force them to do anything. I never force ideas upon them because I think then you're becoming a puppet master and you're not dealing with, as we talked about earlier on, with entities, with real things that have a life independent of yourself. I love that idea of the the characters in your book having a complete life of their own and you just being the conduit. I think that's just such a cool idea. I really, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Hey, I love it. It's beautiful. It's mm. beautiful because um, you have such a, an attachment with them and you also have an attachment to characters that behave absolutely appallingly. So, and you, you fall in love with them too. So I think it's a great, a, a great moral lesson working with these characters because ultimately, like, I don't, the things that I've come to learn from a writer is that I'm unsure of my own individual existence and I don't believe in free will. These are the two things that I've taken from writing. And it's made me, it's, it's developed a, a hell of a bigger sense of compassion in me for bad people as well as good people. You know, mm. I, I, a huge forgiveness because a lot of the people, the characters in my books are in situations where could they possibly have behaved any other way? You know, all the it's fate. All my books, the, the action kind of seems fated, and it's fated because I let it roll out the way it rolls out without me ever trying to control or or have any judgment on it. And that's an incredible thing because I think the big challenge that art helps us move towards is: can we say yes? Can we say yes to all of it? And by Monument Maker, it's an attempt to say yes to all of it, and that includes all the murdered of this, all of the people dis disappeared in wars, all the senseless violence, all the all the violent people as well as the innocent. In fact, all of them. Can we say yes to all of it? Because it seems like every single aspect of it, to me, is ineluctable, completely mm. ineluctable. And that's the big challenge. Life feeds on life. Can we still say yes? All my books are an attempt to say yes. And never to start, and to have as much sympathy for the oppressor as for the oppressed. Because that is when you go past sort of didactic or anything like that, and you get into art. True art says yes in the face of everything. And it's the biggest challenge. It's the biggest difficulty. And that's why also perhaps during the book, I felt myself going a little bit mad, yeah. you know? Because it, it was like an initiation, an initiation into what the, the huge yes that life requires. And that to me has always been modernism's true program. It was never for me a sort of a, a, a deconstructive thing, which became about interrogating or critiquing the text. To me, it was about reforming language to be able to say, and still sort of say yes and say and, and, and it was about affirmation and that's why one of the most important moments for me in literature is the end of the Ulysses which is yes yes mm. I will yes mm. what a way to earn a to earn to end a book the only way the ultimate way amazing this, <laughs> your philosophy on on reading and writing just blows me away the framing narrative of the story is the narrator recalling a trip to Europe He's trying to translate a book by by Pierre, and he's having lots of sex as well with his really sexy girlfriend. And then we're introduced to this um, Ryberg character, who's a soldier of fortune. He's South African, and later we get to know like Frater Jim. And these three people they create this identity of Paimon, and they write science fiction under his name. So I think Frater Jim is at the center of your novel in a lot of ways. But could you tell a bit more about? these particular characters for us? Pierre Melva was inspired again. I mean, when I really got into cathedrals and Romanesque sculpture, I, I would, you can get amazing books because nobody cares about that these days at all. No one cares. So there's not really much a collector's market and you can get these huge, big, lush, heavily photographic tomes for, for next and nothing. And one of the biggest ones for me is um, 
monastic architecture in France by Joan Evans. It's a book that I'm totally obsessed by. The photographs are amazing. They're just they they're like a time capsule in another world. They capture the, the way that and I began to see the way that monasteries and cathedrals could could be the still point in the center of the world. And these photographs are that still point. And then I just imagined how romantic I began to make up stories in my head of how of eccentric people going around all these places back in the day and being photographed there. And then I began to think about uh, uh, Pierre Melville. So then I came up with my own, my own idea of an architect who is completely obsessed by stone and the possibilities of stone and the ultimate stone, the first stone. In other words, the first thing, like the, the, the thing that everything is hung up on. Can we get back to the, the thing behind all things? And he's like, stone was the closest they could sort of come to. So then he comes across um, Maximilian Rayberg, who's also a theologian, very interested in, in uh, religious traditions as well. And they band together with this guy, Frater Jim who um, claims to have come back, to have disappeared during the Second World War, but to have travelled back to Calder Bank in Scotland with a new face where he remarried his original sweetheart in secret. Mm. Now, and this story, and this is, ama this is amazing, and this is genuinely true, I had forgotten that this story, I didn't realise that this story was actually based on a, a family myth or a family truth that we'd grown up with that I'd long forgotten. My grand died in the 1990s, so it's been a long time I've really thought about my grand, if I'm being honest. And um, but then I remembered when I completed the book after the whole Frater Jim thing and, and everything, and I was rereading the book, I was completely bowled over to realise that what had happened is that my my grand's husband went down during the evacuation of Crete. He two people were moved from one boat to another boat. They drew they drew straws, and him and another guy got the straws. They went on to another boat, which was torpedoed by the Germans, and the boat went down. Never heard from again. Uh, but my gran managed to convince herself that he had probably lost his memory because he was never reported dead. So this is when I got that. This is where the idea that disappeared came from, the, the, the not dead. And so all her life, she expected him to return, that he would he would regain. His, it's beautiful and moving, a whole life. And we would dream about him. And if we dreamt about him, she would ask, what did he say? She was always looking for the message. Where is he? Is he okay? It was absolutely heartbreaking. And she never married or even had a partner ever again in her life. So we went on holiday uh, yeah. to Crete near the end of my grand's life. And um, she asked, she's heard there might be a memorial to the sailors who went down in the evacuation of Crete and asked if we could find it. Um, our language wasn't very good. We tried to get a taxi driver. We kept saying memorial, monument. And he, 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 he didn't understand. He took us to some... Lido or something like that. So we gave up and couldn't do it. When we got back home, I told my grand and we were like, we couldn't find the monument. And she said, well, of course you couldn't find it because there is no monument because William's still alive. And I was blown away by that. It was so moving. And then um, I realised once I'd completed the book that this, this is the monument. This is the monument to William that I had constructed. Not only that, I had returned William to her in the form of Frater Jim, who goes right back to the village where she lived, called her bank, with a new face and remarries his sweetheart. And she never realises that she has her man back in her arms again. It was, And I was moved. It was so beautiful. Not only that, I took him, William Forsyth, and I put him in the appendix. And I literally buried him in this monument. I, I took, I, he's no longer the disappeared. He's now the dead. And that was my duty to the dead. And I realised I'd been writing the book with the dead, or rather the book can be writing the book, the dead had been writing the book through me. And it was a mind-blowing, mind-blowing revelation. That's, that's unbelievable. That's so cool. Uh, wow. Really? 
So I guess with those characters in the middle of your novel, they, they write quite a few stories. They kind of sense your novel in a way. But yeah, Fratagem is, is clearly like the, I guess he carries through a lot of the, the themes in your novel, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, he's, a, he, he, he's the one that connects all the magical orders. You know, he gets involved, he, he claims to get involved with this weird Nazi Freemasonry sort of circle that are, that are doing experiments on, that are experimenting on animals. Yeah. Kind of, almost as a soft, a soft art experiments as well, and of course this all unravels in the way that he ends up, he ends up getting the face of someone who worked actually at a concentration camp, actually worked in the gas chambers, who actually experimented on people. So it becomes part of this terrible tradition in a way that's passed through. And then when 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 um, Reberg and Pierre get involved, they have a sort of utopian vision for this thing. It's going to be initiatory. It'll turn people. To, to magic and the magic of the world, but it shows how all these things degenerate so quickly. They degenerate so quickly. And it also shows how the idea for a, for a utopia, this, this constant striving for a utopia, always ends up in totalitarianism, always mm. does, because it has to do violence to human nature itself, the whole human nature back in some kind of way. But the price we pay is civilization. Civilization is the price we pay. You know, we have to rein in a lot of these terrible orgies. Well, that's the good thing. That is the good thing. Civilization is there to hold back this kind of beastliness. And I, but I think the utopian project ultimately always ends in that. And I'm, I'm not a utopian in any way whatsoever. In fact, I'm totally against any utopian striving whatsoever. I think it's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And one of the ways I wanted to show in the book is how these utopia, these utopian things eventually go wrong. I mean, they end up with a circ at the end of the book who are, I mean, I, I feel affectionate for those guys, but they're, they're a bunch of mad, socially maladjusted, anti-Semitic, conspiracy theory, nut jobs. And that's mm. what that's what that's how the thing has degenerated. But yeah, I still have a lot of affection for them. I still have affection for these damaged, difficult people as well. So I wanted to show that course as it goes through. And science fiction's a, a recurring thing with me. I've always been a fan. Maybe it's some of the first books I ever got and they were probably science fiction. So I've always wanted to write some science fiction. So I wrote part of the novel as actually a science fiction novel as written by Paimon, which is mm. fun as well, because I like to write as different writers. Mm. It's something I do quite a lot in all my books. And I wanted the book to sort of read as book within a book, within a book, within a book. You know, and then books speak to each other because at one point or at several points, there's one point when Maximilian Rayberg is 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 come to recover a talking head at the bottom of a well in Africa. Yeah. And Hildegard literally holds him by his feet textually, because <laughs> you see it, and Maximilian disappears down a hole in the page. And and then there are there's a repeated phrase, I wonder where else in the books these words are speaking. That is repeated several times throughout the book. And when you realise that, you start to realise there are trapdoors. There was a subterranean beneath the book itself that people that you're, you're, you can enter in and out of via syntax, often via, I use brackets a lot, as like wounds or trapdoors or openings and, and as a ways of ingress into the subterranean of the novel. And it gets to the point at the end that punctuation becomes characters. You know, there's a quote that there's a, there's a Jack Frost seems to be pursuing the hero of the final book through the text as punctuation. And it gives you an uncanny feeling because every time you then see a, a, a comma or, or, or a question mark, it seems like Jack Frost is in the book, you know. And so at the end, the other the other author of that book is, try, is literally trying to outright syntax to save the life of the grey wolf who's his lover. Hmm. It's mad. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's uh, it's funny because you know a good book when as soon as you finish it, 
you want to go straight back to the start and I did that with yours and it's uh I think it's going to be a reread very quickly for me it's just uh um I don't know <laughs> something else uh, like in your book we go from the CG cartoon at the beginning and then we go to 2099 and it has like the range of something like Pinchon's V or even like something like Cloud Atlas did you have some literary inspirations for your book no not no well not in terms of other big books funnily enough there was no the only big book that I would say that's a model on like everything I do but Monument Maker specifically and I'm coming to realize perhaps how much because I'm re I, I reread it every year and I'm rereading it right now and I'm having more revelations about how we discuss different things in a, in a similar way as I mentioned them earlier is Charles Olson uh, Charles Olson's Maximus poems are they're just one they're, they're they're one of the biggest influences on my thought my life my reading uh, my everything. I mean, I I read I reread that book every single year. And one of the things I love about it is that Charles sets out in that book to find everything in one spot by going deep. What Olson's methodology is: you go deep on one thing and you get to everything. To get to the bottom of one thing is to get to the bottom of everything. So he goes to Gloucester in the Maximus poems, where he lived, where he grew up, and he has this whole idea. It's a whole socio-economic history of the world. The trade has been gradually moving northwest, 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 northwest. When it gets to Gloucester and the fishing industry, that is the apex of civilization. That's the big push right out of history. And it's what Olsen literally grew up, where his roots were. So he tells the story of Gloucester as his own story, but as the roots of the of the, of the of the whole civilization itself. So he brings in whole histories of trade, of religion, of architecture, poetry, of myth, of maritime lore all of these things and he piles it on and he gives you this universal vision from one standpoint, from one place on the earth. And it's like, you know, the the center is everywhere, the circumference is nowhere. So with Monument Maker, I tried to do the same, to write from a center that could somehow bring in all this mm. information on one page, which could range across theories about art, religion, all these things while telling our while taking in genre, historical fiction, science fiction, but from taking it all in. I just wanted to bring it all in. And Olsen, for me, is the great bringer of all in of that. Also Ezra Pound, obviously with the Cantos as well. But And I love I love Pound as well. Pound is a huge influence for me, but Olsen's closer to my heart. I, I mean, I love Olsen. I feel like a communion with him across the years. And so rather than any large novels, I would say large poetry books might have been, might have been the bigger influence, you know, in terms of their monumental scope and scale, you know? Hmm. With your book, there's so much mysticism. There's a lot of religion from different aspects there's a lot of uh mythology secret societies um what's your background in in that like how did you bring that all together because you've got like you've got jewish mysticism you've got you know you've got kabbalah you've got a lot of different aspects of, of different cultures and societies that you've brought in like how how did you get into all of those things well, I mean, I've been on, I was definitely on a bit of a spiritual kick my entire life. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't believe in, in anything, in anything. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in anything at all. I have faith. And my, my big thing is the difference between faith and belief. Belief is an idea that the world is required to adhere to. And when it doesn't, your belief falters. Mm -hmm. Faith requires no explanation. And faith cannot be destroyed by good or bad things happening. Faith is in the, is, the, the isness, the right isness of what is and complete giving up to that. And that's the, that's the conclusion I came to. But I mean, studying through studying spirituality my entire life, I was brought up as a, as a Christian. Uh, I, I, went to, I went to Sunday school and Bible study every Sunday as a young person, which 
for a young person these days is a very unusual background to have. But I thank God for it because I'm well versed in the Bible and I, I love the Bible and I, I love biblical cadence. You know, I love, I grew up in biblical cadence. So I was very interested in the Bible and also just reading commentaries on the Bible and um, Christian mystic texts. But from there, I really got into Jewish mysticism, which is maybe where my heart, my true heart lies. Mm. Like with Kabbalah, with the Zohar, with the Bahir, with Abu Lafia, uh, the Weezer of Worms, with all these absolutely amazing Kabbalistic writers because the writing is amazing. And you, when you read them, also like the pre-Socratics are another big one for me because it's like it's just like see it's like seeing the world completely new without any framework. What just just looking out with the world without having any idea or inherent in the history of ideas. It's like what's going on? Say say what is going on. Say what you think is going on. And that Kabbalistic writing, I I love it. It's so mysterious and numinous, and it, it, it puts you completely in the moment of the reading of it. Mm. And so I really inherited that style. I really wanted to when the when I started this, the bit when I started Monument Maker, I told you it was called the Tomb of the Song. It was heavily Kabbalistic. The Tomb of the Song is a, a Kabbalistic idea, and I wrote it like a Kabbalistic text almost. And from Kabbalah, you know, I taught myself uh, to read and write a little bit of Hebrew. I thought that would be good for me in terms of reading these books. And from mm. there, I also got into occult, the occult and mysticism in general. For I was involved with Alistair Crowley's OTO for mm. quite a few years, um, and I, I don't think I learned much from the, from the organization. <laughs> Most of the people there are complete disaster areas. Yeah. But I still have a good loyalty Crowley as a, as a writer and thinker. And he, he definitely, um, he definitely, I don't, I feel in a very enlightened place. And and I, I don't know who to thank because I studied a lot of stuff. I was also a member of a Sufi order. I went through all this stuff. I wanted to try everything out and see what yeah. I could get to the bottom of. But the maddest thing is, it was literature that really blew my mind and, I, and got me to where I am now, which is a place of, of relative spiritual contentment. Because as I said earlier on, when writing these books, I began to doubt my own existence. I began to realize there was no me to make the effort of writing these books. There was no me. In fact, the whole point was getting the me out of the way and letting the books write themselves. So when you come to these books and you read them, you start to think, well, there's more than me, there's more or less or other than me out there. All you can mm. really say is what is. Now, another writer that I love who, who writes comparable, I think, spiritual texts. And it's all about getting to the moment and saying yes to it, is the writer Clarice Lispector. Um, yeah. Now, I had an uncanny experience with her as well, because when I was writing Monument Maker, there's quite a few sections where I talk about the only word you can trust, and I mean this in my life, the only mm. word you can trust is, 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 it's the only word you can trust. Clarice Lispector says exactly that thing, and I go, Viva, is the only word we can trust. That's absolutely amazing. And it says to me that we're coming on a similar experience here, which is, as I said, losing any concept of free will whatsoever and also losing any concept that we are somehow directing anything. Mm. And that's a really liberating feeling. You can kind of, that knot in your head that maintains the idea of you and that maintains the idea of effort or you pushing against a world that is not you, when that disappears, it's so remarkable. Everything is so easy. There is no one, no one exists to make the effort. It's very hard to find that person if you start to look for it. And one of the things I realised is I've written, I wrote for 15 years straight without anyone reading any of my books, without submitting them to anyone. I didn't know how to. I wrote it, I wrote in complete seclusion. But now I'm starting to realise that was the equivalent of meditating all day, every day for 15 years. And this is what I've come to. So all these belief systems that I came through, I can't say what they, how they contributed because I can't break it down. But I can say the big epiphany came for me from writing 
And also from writing, hopelessly, that's another thing that I learned. That's how I became a writer. I wrote this first novel, right? So bad. It was so wretchedly bad. And I, I wanted to cry. And I, I kept, but then I thought, you know what? If I cry and I give up and I say I'm not a writer, then I will never be a writer. That's what people do. They write something, it's really bad. They think, oh, I'll never be a writer. I'm, I'm, I'm stopping. So I made a vow. I said, I am going to write hopelessly. Absolutely hopelessly. I'm going to finish this dreadful novel. It's going to take me a year. And when I finish it, not only am I going to delete it immediately from my computer, I'm going to take a hammer and I'm going to smash my laptop to pieces, throw it in the bin and start writing a new novel. And I said to myself, if I can do that, if I can write for a year in the knowledge that everything I achieve that year is going to be completely destroyed and then I can start again, then I've got a chance of being a writer. And that is what I did. That's when I made my vow, which I consider a holy vow to myself, to becoming a writer and also to give, giving myself up to creating hopelessly. It's almost like what the cathedral builders would do because there was generation after generation who would never see that cathedral made. Right. Yet they still worked for it. I had to convince myself what it took to be a monument maker. And it turned out I did because that computer it, uh, is in pieces and is long and some kind of tip somewhere. And I started again. Oh, mate, that is the probably the best origin story for a writer I've ever heard. <laughs> Brilliant. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with David Keenan. This episode is brought to you by Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Dobervilles, as read by Kendrick Lamar. Tess of the Dobervilles, a poor woman, faithfully presented by Thomas Hardy. On an evening in the latter part of May, a middle-aged man was walking homeward from Shaston to the village of Marlat, and then joining Vale of Blakewall, Blakewall. Get it now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with David Keenan. You spent years as a music journalist. When did you first realise you wanted to write novels? I always, I always knew I would write my first two novels. Then after that, I, what I say is my first two novels are the novels I knew I would write. The novels I've written since then are the novels that are inexplicable and I, I, I could have no way of knowing I would have written. I mean, if you read Exabeth, like Monument Maker, you'll find it's pretty hard to imagine sitting down and conceiving that novel as an idea. It's a novel that had to be realised in, 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 in its writing, in its, in its writing of itself. It couldn't be pre-planned. But the first two, this is Memorial Device, which is set in the post-punk years, in a small town called Airdrie outside of Glasgow, which I grew up in. Well, I, I, was I, I wasn't that generation. I was too young to be post-punk. I was in like indie and underground just after post-punk. But I got into post-punk when I got into music. So I used to see all these amazing, cool characters in Airdrie, a tiny little shitty town, you know, but they looked amazing. They were all dressed like punks. I would imagine what their lives were like. And and everyone said Airdrie was a shitty, rough, working-class town. And of course, it, it was, and it could be, and it, and it still it really is now. But that was not my experience of it. My experience of growing up in that rough town was heaven on earth. I had wonderful parents. There was wild countryside all around us. It seemed that there was culture there on the streets of the working-class towns. People were in bands, they were making music. I was having girlfriends. I was looking at all these older generations and imagining them reading poetry and writing novels and jamming in their band at the weekend. And all of life and excitement seemed up ahead. I was so excited, sexually excited. I was so turned on by the idea of the future. It was amazing. And I said to myself at the time, one day I will write a novel in gratitude for the magical experiences I've been gifted in my childhood. And also to fly in the face of these fucking whining 
pain in the arse Scottish novels that are all about, oh, how fucking rough and how fucking terrible mm. and how we're all on drugs and how we're all drunk and how we all talk like bams in these Scottish towns. I hate all that. I came to rescue the, the cliched idea of Scottish working class fiction in terms of that. You know, so I, I wanted to write a romance, a poetic romance that happened to be set in a rough Scottish village. So I knew I would always write that. The, my second novel, For the Good Times, very similar. For the Good Times is about four young men growing up and they're down in Belfast during the Troubles uh, in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, my dad and his brothers came from the Ardoin, were Irish Catholics who lived through the Troubles. My dad left and came to uh, uh, Glasgow and then Airdrie, but they stayed. So we lived the Troubles through them. They would come and stay with us to get away sometimes with a secret annex and in, in a loft where they stayed when they were on the run from Belfast. Um, we talked to them on the phone, so I, I really lived through it. And well, we'd be sometimes locked in with my dad's brothers in the annex, and they were tough guys, man. I, I got a lot of my style from them. You know, they wore rings and they had loads of chains, and they dressed sharp and they smoked endless cigarettes, and they were oh, they were totally illiterate. Couldn't my, my father couldn't read or write, and neither could any of his brothers at all, which is what was amazing to me because they could tell the best stories, and they had total faith in language, total faith in language. My dad would always say, "You need to read. You need to read." You need to be you need to be a boy with imagination. And I would think, oh, what the fuck would he know? He can't even read. But then it occurred to me, what incredible faith in books. He believed that if he could have read, that books would have blown his mind, would have changed his life. Now, I wanted to say to my dad, Dad, you would be disappointed by most books. Most books do not blow your mind or change your life. But that's when I made a vow. I said, I will write another book and it will be about the way these guys talk, memorialising their incredible language, their poetry, their inarticulate poetry, which sounded to me like modernist prose, but also their resilience, their resilience that they could come from a war zone and still tell a story about it that would be the funniest story you've ever heard that might involve somebody getting shot in the spine. Yeah, and they'd be crying, and I'd say, that is incredible, how humour and storytelling can redeem suffering, can literally redeem suffering. So that was another thing I said, I will write this book and redeem all of these guys' lives with the poetry of their own inner, inner their own, I always, it's so funny because I always, it's a word I have a blank with, the word that means, I've got to say inarticulate, and it's so yeah. weird, I want to say the word, what is the word for not being able to read or write? Right, uh, illiterate. Illiterate, I, yeah. I, I find it the hardest word to get, to get <laughs> it's so weird, typically so. But what happened is, I my, the vow I made, I talk about making holy vows, another vow I made, Round about this time was when my dad told me about his faith in books. I said to myself, I vowed then I'm going to write the kind of novels that would live up to an illiterate person's idea of what they can do. That was the vow I took right then. And that's what I wanted to do with my novels. To be as mind-blowing as somebody who couldn't read thinks a novel must be to read. Because most of them are. Most of them are really fucking pedestrian and ordinary and don't do anything for your mind. Yeah. So you told me before that you've got how many novels that are just sitting there ready to go? I'm going to be honest. At this point, I don't know. I've, I've lost count. I can easily, I mean, I'm about to sign a new two book deal with White Rabbit. So that's two completed ones. I can tell you of another one, at least, at least another four. So minimum six, but there could be more than that. Maybe maybe another eight. I haven't gone back on, on and looked through my hard, some of my hard drives in years. And sometimes I, I'll i find a new book and I'll be like, what? Like Extabeth, my third novel? I found that and I had no memory of writing it. I found it because um, the way Andrew Weatherall, he was a great a great friend of mine and a, a huge inspiration of, for me and my editor, Lee Braxton. And um, 
we went to Convenanza Festival together and we were, we were thinking of establishing a special press called Convenanza Press. It would be me, Andrew, Bernie, who runs Convenanza and, and Lee Braxton. And, and Lee just happened to mention, he was like, do you have any, anything, any of your older writing that you might think would be good to do a limited book on Convenanza? And I was like, oh, I haven't looked through some hard drives and I just pulled up one hard drive and I just saw this book X to be. Mm. So I clicked on it and I was like, what? <laughs> I thought, I don't need, I have no memory of, I have no memory of writing this, but it's amazing. It was, it was at this voice that I didn't, I didn't even recognize. And I said to Lee and I was like, Lee, you need to read this. I've just found this. And Lee was like, this is your, this is your next novel. I mean, this, this is your next, complete informed and, and they are ready to go. It was absolutely ex- crazy. That's about a Russian girl, isn't it? Extabeth is set in Russia and it is about a young Russian girl, her relationship with her father and her lover, who's her father's friend. But it's also set in St Andrews and it's about a strange um, sort of teaching group that teaches uh, bibliomancy and tarot. And so there's a story of the Russian girl and the father and the music, but there's also an entity called Extabeth that progressively seems to be taking over the telling of the book or the telling of the tale. She manifests textually halfway through it. And so in a way, it's it's organised that you get a story, but the story is broken up with small gnomic essays on topics from the novel that students from this study group have written about the novel. So it jumps back out and in and out of the novel, you get a story, you get a commentary and one strange gnomic aspect of it, which really enlightens you in a very different way, then you jump back into the story again. But I I have no recollection of doing it. The voice is so completely there. Analia speaks without... She doesn't use very short sentences. She doesn't use... Um, um, punctuation except full stops or no question marks or no exclamation marks or no commas just a very odd strange voice it's so odd I mean I have to say I love I, I love Extabeth I, I love that book it's very 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 dear to me I'm gonna do some serious shopping after this episode <laughs> brilliant <laughs> what are you working on at the moment I'm writing well so over the past 15 years or so as I've been writing Occasionally, books come along, like Ex the Beth, but Ex the Beth somehow disappeared from my memory, even, which is quite amazing. Books come along that are completely inexplicable. Inexplicable. And I don't even want to tell you the plots of some of these things because it just seems insane. But I began to call them Books of Moses. Books of Moses. Because they came down, like in Monument Maker, they came down a river, mm. were discovered by me, and they were fatherless. They were fatherless. You know, the only Moses is put into a basket and is sent down the river where the words live. I think that's said somewhere in Monument Maker. So I began calling these books Books of Moses when they would wash up. And when they wash up, they norm- and I normally spend about, not a long time, but they normally, they normally spend about three months inside each of them a little bit. Then I put them at one side and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. Don't know what's going on. Now I've realised all these Books of Moses are one Book of Moses, containing multiple Books of Moses. And I realised that recently because in a vision... I don't know whether I call it a dream or a vision or just the usual writing session when things are speaking. I had the most uncanny experience when um, I sat down to write and as I was writing, I was watching and this thing was happening. Uh, It came without an idea in my head. What happened is I visited Auschwitz. Uh, Again, I'm very interested in history of of, of, uh, Judaism and very interested in Eastern European Judaism in particular, mm. uh, music, traditions, customs. And I'd, I'd never visited Poland. And I went to Poland and I got a chance, to, somebody asked me if I'd like to get a tour of Auschwitz. And uh, yes, I really wanted to. My mum taught the Holocaust at school and she never got to visit. So I wanted to take some photographs with her as well. So I got to visit Auschwitz and it, it was 
terrifying and upsetting and and that everyone's angry. One thing you realise about Auschwitz is everyone who visits there is angry. And so it's a really unpleasant. Everyone's angry with everyone else. It's an awful experience. Everyone's pushing in and shouting and it's horrible shouting at each other for walking on the railway tracks or whatever. And, and just the terrible things went on. I couldn't get it out of my head. I was totally haunted by it. I was specifically haunted by a punishment cell in, in, the, in the basement of, of the one of the places where they first tried out um, Cyclone B. And a punishment cell, there was a small, tiny, it was a concrete cell. There was a small bit at, under, at the bottom of the concrete door where you could be slid, slid under. And then once you're in the punishment cell, you couldn't stand to full size. And you'd be forced in there. And I know, I mean, you wouldn't think that was the most terrible thing that happened in the concentration camps. Couldn't get out of my, my mind, couldn't get out of my mind for years. Then I totally forgot about it. Then I went to sit, sat to write down but a, a month or so ago, and I found myself standing outside that punishment cell in Auschwitz, literally, as I was writing. And I found myself crawl under the bottom of the punishment cell, stand up, unable to fully stand. And then what happened is I pushed the wall at the back of the punishment cell, and the wall gave way. And in the darkness, all I could see was a pair of naked, hairy legs. And I realised it was fucking Moses. Immediately, I thought, I could. I smelled a smell. I smelled a smell, and it smelled, and at first, it smelled like men, men in toilets. And I thought it was the smell of my dad. And then I realised, no, it's Moses. And I could see his naked legs. And I, I was like, fucking hell. I've been writing these books of Moses, and Moses has finally turned up to give me a tour of the underworld, finally. And I realised that as a writer... As a writer, you have to descend to the underworld at some point. Everyone does it, whether it's Dante, whether it's Pound, you know, whether you know any of these things. I realised that this is now my time to literally descend into the underworld. And so I followed Noah's naked legs, you know, and I was like, "This is Moses," because all I can see is his naked legs. But he starts doing funny, so he, he then takes me down into the underworld, and I realised that it's a Jewish underworld, and it's populated by people who died in the camps, but who don't remember or even know that they're dead. And then I realised that what Moses is doing is, or what I'm going to try to do, is I'm going to try and bring these people back from the underworld into the world again. But I'm surely going to fail because all I'll be doing bringing them back is reminding them of their death and letting them die again. But yet they seem bereft without their death. So what happens is people begin in the underworld, begin to suspect that they're in the underworld because they say, don't you feel as if this life has been going on forever? Do you remember anything ever ending? But then they, they start to remember animals that have disappeared. They're like, well, well, they're not accounts of animals that used to exist. And then all the, like bison, aurochs, all these animals that are extinct, there becomes a lore of endings, a lore of endings of animals. And the people, and so they, they form a league called the League of Banished Animals, who are writers that believe that they can paint animals back into existence and corporality or animality will come back to them and allow them to die. But what Moses has done is he's done a cruel trick on me because, again, everything's fated. I know I'm going to try and rescue Leah Deutsch. She was a, a child star singer in Zagreb. Leah Deutsch was murdered in Auschwitz. I didn't realise she was murdered in Auschwitz. I, found, I read about her in a book. And when I found out she was murdered in Auschwitz and she was in my book and I accessed it via punishment cell via Auschwitz, I was like, my duty is to rescue Leah Deutsch, the child star, and bring her back. But I know I won't be able to, because early on, Moses demonstrated to me that every time I try to change the, my fate, I'm animalized. Every time I try to do something, my hands become paws or claws or fins, and I'm unable to do stuff. Then I realized that in Monument Maker, in one of my other books, there's talk of a guy called the Commandant. The Commandant. And he's made some strange art. Art that appears beneath concentration camps or on the walls and fences of concentration camps. They call him the Commandant because they believe he's an insider. Well, I start to realise that in Books of Moses, 
I'm going to end up becoming the commandant because I'm going to try to rescue Leah Deutsch, but all that I'm going to have left are my claws. So I'm going to try to claw my way up, literally from the underworld, back to a concentration camp. I'm going to become the commandant because I'm not going to be able to get there. And all I'm going to be able to do is pick out these strange labyrinths that were discovered beneath the concentration camps. All this just came together from writing without a thought in my head. It's, 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 what is it? It's magical, it's disturbing, it's awe-inspiring. And it, you just feel you've got a duty. And this book was, this, this whole book, I was given this whole revelation, just non-stop writing it. And I realised this is the final book of Moses. I now need to go back and bring all the other books of Moses together because I now realise that, that, that what they have in common thematically. They now make sense, whereas they didn't for years. I realised I had to put them to one side. It's really remarkable. And it's a great feeling just to be caught up like this when you're on something, when you when you can't stop thinking about it morning and night, when, you, when you're being written. It's a really exciting feeling. And so this book of Moses has been, it's next level for me. I'm, I'm loving it, but I'm kind of... It sounds disturbing and unbelievable and visionary. It's, is it going to be as long as Monument Maker? Well, it's 30,000 words at the moment. I think Books of Moses has got a chance of being as long as Monument Maker. I mean, I didn't think it would do a book as long as Monument Maker again. It may not be quite as long, but it's going to, it'll be getting there. It's, it's probably going to be two to three novels length, basically, I think, once it's all went together. You know, but you never know because I, I tend, I don't edit, I destroy. So if I don't like sections, I don't tidy them. I mean, obviously I tidy sections a little bit, but if I think I've gone awry, I just destroy it. I absolutely destroy it. So the the the, the, the end section of Monument Maker, I, t- I told you it was about two minutes long. Um, well, that that end section alone was 120,000 words at first, you know, and I, and I, I cut it to 40,000. So although I have probably three or four books worth of books of Moses, there's no saying what the end workout might be, you know. Well, and with your writing process, I assume by the sound of it, you you're writing every day whenever you get the chance, aren't you? Pretty much. I, I, I have slowed down a little bit, I'll be honest. Um, my, my approach initially was really athletic. It was like marathon sessions. I, I, was out to, I was out to prove myself as a writer and I wanted to prove even that I, could, that I, that I had a work ethic, you know, as well. So I'd do the whole thing of like lighting a candle and then not stopping writing until that whole damn candle would burn down, you know? Just to, to get yourself to do it and also to get yourself into the point where it's a habit. It's not something that you... You know, you, I know a lot of writers dread sitting down at the computer or getting themselves there. I don't have that problem. I've written so consistently for so long now that it's my favourite thing to do. It's my hobby. It's just something I do every day. And when I don't do it, I feel depressed. I don't really feel myself. If I don't have a book on the go or a project on the go, I would start to feel a little bit down, to be honest with you. It gives me the total meaning of my life. But um, at the same time, uh, I long to give it up. I, 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 I'm, I'm so compelled by it that it's wearying. It's wearying. Mm. I want at one point to be able to walk away. I've had to develop rituals because um, what I, one of the things is I never take notes. And if an idea comes to me during the day, I never write it down or even allow myself to think about it. I say, no, I banish it. I'm like, no, I'm not working right now. So you don't get to speak to me about the book. Otherwise I'd be bombarded with these voices, 20, voices in your head 24 hours a day. So I just say, I'm not working. If this is a genuinely good idea. You will remain and come back to me when I'm writing. But these days, Honestly, Books of Moses, some days I'm not writing that much. I'm always writing something. But I've actually got to the point where some days I might only write 300 words, you know? And that's not much for me. But at the same time, what you do realise, it all adds up. You write 300 words a day. Well, in 10 days, you get 3,000 words. 
You know, and once mm -hmm. you get, you know, like, like I don't know, I mean, you've got 90, and you only 10,000 words, your, your book has begun. So all you really need to do as well is, I don't believe in squeezing my brain. If I sit down and things are coming, I go. If I'm sitting down and really trying to invent something, I stop. Because I don't believe in inventing. I'm not thinking things up. I'm literally transcribing the book that needs to be transcribed. So it's coming up with all these techniques for working, but also for giving myself peace. And that's what I say. I'd like one day, like Rimbaud, who's one of my great heroes, because he cured himself of art. He cured himself of art. I want to cure myself of writing. And I want to write myself out the other side of literature and back into life where I intend to disappear without a trace. <laughs> it sounds like when when the people who are channeling your novels stop, if they ever do, then maybe, you know, that's what, once you've transcribed all those stories, maybe they'll let you go. I hope so. I, I mean, I really do hope so. I think also they just think I'm a bit of a mug. I'm just a bit of an easy, I'm an easy guy to play, and I'll write their stories if they, just, if they just queue up. And sometimes that's what it feels like. I sometimes do feels a queue of like people behind me waiting to tap <laughs> on my shoulder, saying like my story next, mate. You know what I mean? That kind of style. <laughs> Hopefully, you don't get like you know any anyone you don't like lining up behind you, like Boris Johnson, you know, coming to tell his <laughs> life story. Well, you know what I mean? But then I said earlier, there are some characters in my books that I really don't like. Yeah. You know, sometimes I'll be like, oh, why did you have to go and do that? Or what a horrible thing to say. Or, you know, but you just got to let them do it. You got to let them misbehave. You know, my characters aren't ciphers. They're not ciphers. They don't stand in to make political, social or moral points mm. ever, ever at all. They're real people in real situations dealing with and all their flaws and all of their beauty, you know. I think that's one of the things I love about Monument Maker is that there's no... There's no overarching political narrative at all. There's no like, you know, the, all these books that talk about, you know, ecology or environmental disaster or um, political unrest. It doesn't, it just tells a story. It doesn't make any, it doesn't, it doesn't choose a side at any stage, does it? That's what art has to do. Art yeah. cannot choose a side, otherwise it's not art. It's just not art to me, I'm sorry. I know I'm not interested in anything that isn't art. You know, and that's the, that is the thing. I think like, you know, if you write books to make points, write a fucking essay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Please spare us. You know, get out of art. Stop ruining art for the big ideas while, while you're peddling little crap ideas and how society needs to be managed. That's not what I mean. That's fine. It's legitimate, but that's not what that's not great literature, and it's not art. You know, great. Again, I go back. Great literature is the literature and art at its best is the great is the big challenge, the big big challenge, the challenge of affirmation. The affirmation of everything as it is, not as we might wish or want it to be, but as it is. Because you know what? Your only chance to be happy, your only chance to say this, is not in some phantom future where everything will be you'll be able to affirm it, because it's all nice now and we've done the suffering. The only time you have you have the your only moment you have to say yes is now. Now. And my whole thing is if now only exists in order to plot its overthrow, then when will we ever? arrive in the now and my book is about arriving you in the now in all the difficulties with all the suffering and with all the wonder and magic and it presents it to you and it presents it to you in a way hopefully which you can say wow what a show what a show you know <laughs> there's that joseph campbell quote i always go back to it because i fucking love it he says uh you know you may not have the best seat in the house but you've got to admit what a show <laughs> I love that. I love that. You know, what a lovely, affirmative, exciting thing for art to do. You know what I mean? Art that critiques. Oh, my God. Give me a break. It's so fucking easy. It is so easy. 
It's so easy to critique. It's so hard to say yes. That's the great challenge. And all my books are always about that. I never come down to any point. And also, you know, it's funny, like for one of the good times, people always say, well, you know, you didn't, you, well, violence is problematic. You, you didn't, I didn't, I feel as if you didn't come down and make and clearly say that and condemn violence. Well, well, you're damn right, I didn't. I didn't condemn violence. It did not condemn violence. I didn't come to condemn violence. The violence that was happening in that book was a fact. That's violence is something to become come to terms with. You know what I mean? And also, imagine if I spent two years writing a book just to make the point that nobody likes having violence perpetrated against them. <laughs> How facile. How idiotic. What a waste of years. And if you can say what your book is about and the point that your book set out to make, tell me that because I won't be reading it. Because there's no point in reading it. You know? That's what I always say. So if you can sum up your book in one sentence, one sentence is quite enough. And the whole point about Monument Maker is it cannot be summed up because what I always say is the meaning of Monument Maker, what Monument Maker is about is the experience of reading Monument Maker. Just like a piece of music by Bach, what is it about? It is the experience of listening to music by Bach. It is not about getting to the end of it as quickly as possible and saying, I've solved it now, here's what it was about. I make art that you spend time inside. I make art like the dance like the music, like the experience, like the cathedral, you know? Yeah, I think your book is the kind of book that you can live inside. You will literally take this book with you and it will not desert you at any stage. It'll live with you forever. I'd love to think that. I'd love to think that. I, I, mean, I think of my books as living entities and I hope people go and have lifelong relationships with them because I know I will. I know mm. I will. I think I'll be reading and decoding and being amazed and confused by Monument Maker for the rest of my life, you know? We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with David Keenan. This episode is brought to you by the new Toyota iSlam, with room for the whole militia and still space for a rocket launcher in the back. Available now at Kabul Toyota. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with David Keenan. Can I ask you, was there a gateway book for you, a book that opened up the world of literature and reading? Um, two books, two, two all-time favourite books. <clears throat> One was um, uh, Under the Volcano by Malcolm Lowry, which just com- became an obsession, obsession mm. with me. When I first read that book, I was probably older than when most people read it. Well, I don't know about these days. But I know when I was younger, they would even study like Lowry's poetry at school sometimes. I mean, he's, he was much more cared for then than he is now. But I encountered um, Under the Volcano fairly late on in, in, in life, but it blew me away because it brought, it, it brought together all my interests as well, like Kabbalah, mysticism, mm. magic, symbolism, imagery, myth, allegory, but also high energy telling, a book that is like an Ouroboros that begins as it ends. All my books, you said you would go back to read Monument Maker again. That's what I want. My books are all Ouroboros. He's very much like Lowry's Volcano that keep repeating forever. And so they're like this kind of eternal sort of motion engine. That's why they stay alive because they have an energy that keeps turning and an internal dynamic that keeps them generating. Just like when you open Under the Volcano, it's electric every time you're in there. And again, it's like an experience. Reading Under the Volcano was an experience. And it's the first time when I read a book, I was like, wow, that book most of all is about the experience of reading Under the Volcano. 
So then I wanted to read everything else. So I, I became a collector of Lowry. I think I have virtually everything at this point. Any critical books about him, always various editions, uh, photographs, memories. Became utterly obsessed by his time at Dorton when he was living in a fisherman's shack. And they met up with um, a magician called Charles Stansfield Jones, who was a the magical child of Alistair Crowley, a guy called Frater Akkad, who taught him Kabbalah, which he then used in... in, in, in uh, Volcano, which is very much like I taught myself Kabbalah and used it in Monument Maker. It was a big, so that was massive for me. And just like the energy and the power of language and the, the, the musicality of it and, and the intensity of it. You could see he was close to insanity. And of course he was. And he's, he felt himself pursued by the, by furies and his cabin went up in flames and he lost a manuscript and he was a man, mad alcoholic and mm. everything appealed. <laughs> everything appealed. I fell in love with that. But that got me so excited about literature and really made me want to write. The other one was, uh, this was a life-changing book for me. Although it's not fiction, it was Lester Bang's Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung, the American music critic who died in 1982. In 1988, when I was 17 years old, Grew Marcus compiled a selection of the best of his writings called Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung. I bought it and it just, it was life-changing for me. It was his, his writing, the energy of his writing. Uh, it was as good as music. It was as, as exciting as rock and roll music. I liked reading Lester Bangs as much as I liked listening to Lou Reed, as much as I liked listening to Velvet Underground or the Stooges or the music that he wrote about or Van Morrison. And I became obsessed by Bangs. I began to exchange, like, I had a friend in New York called Alan Licht, who's a musician as well and a writer, and he would get copies of old magazines, back issues of Cream, and photocopying the bangs, things that I hadn't read. And I began to realise, I began to aspire to write music, to write literature. Because I think the byline on the front was, rock and roll is literature, literature is rock and roll. And that's definitely been one of my absolute bylines in my life. Literature is rock and roll, rock and roll is literature. I still think of that, you know? And so he began to show me, between him and Lowry, was a way to write that was exciting, that had a musicality, and that had that rock and roll cadence that I loved as well, you know? And uh, he made me want to be a music journalist, and, and I spent 25 years, thanks to Lester, uh, developing my own style. And I think it was a great apprenticeship for someone writing novels, because... When you're writing about music, you're writing about something that's essentially nebulous, that is very, very hard to describe, you know, but you can. You know, it's that old thing, that crap, stupid line people say, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Well, dancing about architecture is a brilliant idea, and you can definitely do it, and I love that idea. And you can definitely write about music too, because I, I feel as if I developed a style that was more like synesthetic, you know, where you're confusing uh, colours and sounds and feels and shapes, you know, because I didn't want to overlay, again, with the, uh, most music journalism these days is just like social criticism, you know what I mean? It's just sort of like political criticism and, and the vague service of something that's nothing to do with the music, because it's difficult to write about music. It's much easier to hang some social political critique on the top of it, rather than actually engage in what these sounds are about. But I wanted to get to the bottom of writing about sounds, and that definitely informed, went on to inform me as a, a as a writer of literature massive so those two books for me were just like scales falling from your eyes type material wow larry is something else i love larry he's uh yeah he's amazing um what are you currently reading i don't read a lot of i don't read a lot of contemporary fiction um i'll be honest well look here's my this is my little reading pile i've been reading recently so francis wilson's amazing biography of D.H. Lawrence, Burning Man, the Ascent of D.H. Lawrence. This book is amazing. It's really amazing as well. It's a, book, it's a biography via Lawrence's more fugitive writing, fugitive pieces, you know, mm. through his main works. And um, like, and I, that, I'm a fan of that myself. The, the introduction to 
Fantasia of the Unconscious is just one of the most amazing pieces of writing ever by Lawrence. And a lot of his Italian travel journals and things like that. I mean, I absolutely love him. Again, talk about a madman I mean, who was possessed by, by myth and his books yeah. and writings are activated by myth. His, his animal poetry, everything. Absolutely incredible. Um, some other things I read. This is a contemporary fiction I just read. Polar, you're going to have to forgive me because I don't know how I'm going to be able to pronounce her name. Polar Oleox Arao. Polar yeah. Oleox Arak, sorry. Mona, I really enjoyed this book. It's coming out on, Ser is it Serpent's Tale? This year. This is quite a hallucinatory, sort of um, violent, atavistic, regressive novel uh, about literature and decomposition that I really, really enjoyed. Um, I'm also reading, see, I have a lot of books on the go at one time with you as well. Selected Letters of John Berryman. Again, I'm a huge fan of the dream songs and I love, I mean, I really love his, his syntax and his ways of shortening words and his easy, his sort of colloquial way with experimental language. That's very much what, what, what inspired my me and my father's way. Reminds me of John Berryman because, you know, what? and for the good times, what I do is I get a lot of Irish jokes, but I write them, I lay them out as if they're experimental concrete poetry. Because if you read the text of Irish jokes, they're like avant-garde literature. You know, they're dissembling language to make some mad affirmative point and they get you to laugh. You know, and, and Berryman's very much like that for me. It's absolutely joyous. I'm reading a book, I'm always reading music books, The World of Bob Dylan, a collection of essays on Bob Dylan, including mm -hmm. Gil Marcus, who mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of as well. And I'm doing another current reread of Olson's Maximus poems, this time in the company of George F. Butterick's Guide to the Maximus poems, which is just an absolute mind blower. I mean, talk about living inside these books. You'd live inside these books forever. And I also read another good book that's coming out later, this, uh, later next year. Um, Peter Riley, Strandings. Um, it's, it's a Melville scholar who starts to lose, it's non-fiction, a Melville scholar, I'm a huge Melville fan, who starts yeah. to lose a grip on reality as he becomes obsessed by the mass beachings of whales around the UK. And he becomes part of the subculture of people who collect or scavenge for whale bones. Really amazing book, Strandings by Peter Riley. It's out in February as well, and I, I really recommend that also. Sounds, that sounds so good. Love the That's sound great. of that. Yeah. Really, really great. Really, really great. He's literally becomes haunted by the ghosts of whales. It's incredible. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with David Keenan. This episode is brought to you by Winnie the Pooh and the 100 Acre Re-Education Camp, starring Xi Jinping in cinemas now. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. It's time to hear David's top 10. Okay, I've run it down here. I've probably, I've probably mentioned some already. Yeah. But here we go. So, I Go Viva by Clarissa Lispector. Mora mm -hmm. Jean by Blaise Sendrars. Under the Volcano by Malcolm Lowry. The Maximus Poems by Charles Olson. Monastic Architecture of France by Joan Evans. Psychotic Reactions in Carburetor Dung by Lester Banks. Lipstick Traces by Grew Marcus. In the Sierra, Mountain Writings by Kenneth Rexroth. The Love Object, Selected Stories by Edna O'Brien. And Leviathan by Paul Auster. Wow, good list. Um, <laughs> Clarice Lispector, so she is such a fascinating character. What what do you make of her? 
think she's one of the greatest writers of all time. She's one of the most visionary writers ever. And she's she's what she's able to do with prose is what I try to do myself is that she takes she she takes you so far mm. with prose that she takes you to the very precipice of language itself. And then she just sort of points. She points, she takes you as far as you can with language, then she points to what is beyond language, and you see it, and you feel it, and you experience it. And that, to me, is pure magic. And when I read her books, especially Agua Viva, which for me is a holy text, I feel euphoric. I feel completely alive because it completely delivers me to the moment. It wakes you up to the magic of the passing moment, which most people never really exist in or for long. People are lost in their thoughts or anticipating the future or wondering about the past. But the spectre is... She completely is. And just the idea that she, she can take you to the precipice of language and point to what is, that is, that is poetry. That is, the, that is the magic of language. That you can use language to describe or at least to indicate that which is indescribable. That's amazing to me, but it can be done because in Lispector's hands, that's what happens. Incredible. And it blows me away that those books were so popular at the time in our country. You know, I can't imagine someone writing like that now and being hailed as a sort of popular figure. But it totally does give you faith that that kind of people still do need and care for that kind of affirmative art, that daring experimental affirmative art that almost feels like when you're reading with Spectre, it's like she's plotting the very shape of consciousness. It's un it's as uncanny as that. And that's what I like to feel I try to do with my own books, plotting the very shape of consciousness using language. I think when I read her the first time, I got the feeling that she was a bit like you and she was almost just a conduit and she was channeling something that was far greater than, you know, the sum of the parts. But with her, with her background, with her trauma, with all of the things that happened to her, I feel legitimately that she would be someone who would probably challenge, uh, channel a whole lot of those things. There's a lot of the dead in her past. Certainly. Mm. But then I think there's dead over past. It's just mm. the weird thing is I think contemporary we're so narcissistic and individualistic these days that we, we, we don't pay the dead any attention. We pay no heed of them whatsoever. But, you know, the dead are the, are the fact that life is predicated on all the endless dead. And we have to come to terms and have some kind of relationship with them because we're about to join them ourselves. And we owe them something, the dead. And we've lost that. We've lost the concept of elders. But what I always loved that Gary Snyder would say, contemporary elders are books. And books, certainly for me, were my elders. But I guess the whole point is coming to terms with these dead, because there's a, there's a Jungian idea which always kind of blew me away as well, that Jung argues that he was like, this, there's this Freudian idea, that the, the big problem that you have to deal with in your life psychologically, or the problem of your soul more properly, is really local. It's really local. It's your mum, your dad, how you were brought up, your potty training, your early sexual experiences. It's so fucking local and parochial. But Young says, no, no. What we owe all of our, what we owe all of our development to and what we've got to come in terms of, it's not a piffling relationship with our mother and father. It's a relationship with all of the dead. And the fact that we will be joining that dead, that's the big relationship. And I just think without some kind of connection to the dead, our lives are impoverished and we're also more scared ourselves of what we're about to take on by becoming the dead. So we have to acknowledge the dead. We have to have a conversation with the dead while we're alive and listen to them 
and allow them to have their say because one day that will be our say that we will be voicing in chorus with all of those dead, you know? And so in a way, Clarice and I maybe you might have maybe more suffering or more direct violence in our past, but there's not a single one of us that is not haunted by all of the dead or whose inheritance isn't all of the dead. And artists are the ones I think, great artists are the ones that at least attempt, attempt a conversation, attempt to bring them in, attempt to come to terms with them, attempt to, to open the mouth of the dead and to let them speak. You know, it's like an Egyptian ritual, it's a ritual that's been going on since the beginning of time, the opening of the mouth of the dead. And I think that's the responsibility of writers to open the mouth of the dead and allow them to speak. And that's when you and when you hear Clarice Lispector, yes, it seems like the dead are speaking. They're even speaking through suffering insects. It's incredible. They're speaking in the death throes of insects. Unbelievable. Mm, definitely. All right, well, before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where everybody can buy your fucking amazing book and where we can find you online and things like that? And um, well, you can get the books available everywhere. It's, you can get it at any independent bookshop. It's in Waterstones. You can get it online. Um, you can get it in cool bookshops in London, like Pages of Hackney, LRB Bookshop. You can get it in Treadwell's, a magical bookshop. It was really cool that they stocked it as well. Um, and I, I don't really have a presence. I don't have a website or any of that crap. But the only thing I presence I have online is I, I'm on Twitter, where my, my handles reverse diorama, and it's, it is mostly. It's mostly book related, so if you want to keep up to date on all my stuff, I do all my announcements and stuff like that there as well. And I've got announcements of quite a few books uh, coming up. In fact, just next month, I have um, Extabeth is coming out on November the 10th in paperback, but it's expanded because I bundled it with an unreleased third novel, which was called The Towers, The Fields, The Transmitters, which is a sort of prequel sequel. Originally, we did it when you, if you pre-ordered the original Extabeth, you could get this as an ebook. But because so many people missed out, because I really like it, and because of the weird way it works with Extabeth, we've decided to make it a two books in one, the paperback. So it sort of flips over like the old Ace paperback used to do, like Junkie. Oh, wow. So you turn it over, and you read Extabeth yeah. one way, then you flip it over, and you read the Tower of the Field to Transmitters the other way, and they yeah. sort of meet in the middle, which when you realise how they connect, is a really cool kind of thing. So that's the next book. Oh, that's my next release that's coming out. I'm quite excited about it. When will that be out? 10th of November, so a few Amazing. weeks. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me. This has been so much fun. Yeah, it's been great, Ben. I really, really loved that conversation. Fantastic. And thanks so much for all the wonderful things you said about Monument Maker. It really means a lot. It's amazing to hear people have a developer of their own relationship with it. Remarkable. Especially after 10 years, actually having a life, it just seems unbelievable. I cannot describe how much I love that book. It is, uh, it's probably one of the highlights of the last probably five or six years of my reading and and i think it's going to be something i go back to over and over so unbelievable work well done and i will be keen to read anything else you do in the future brilliant thank you so much ben i appreciate it thanks once again to david keenan monument maker is out now through white rabbit books Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back for your next episode next week.